have your Bible, uh, let me invite you to take it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 7, uh, the seventh chapter of Daniel, the book of the Old Testament that we've been in, we've been studying really since the end of July. And we've come to this seventh chapter. I began preaching from this seventh chapter last week uh, in sort of an introductory way and uh, sort of showed you how this seventh chapter, uh, it's a vision that was given to Daniel, uh, one that sort of serves as a prophetic sweep of history from Daniel's time all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ uh, to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so Daniel chapter 7 is where we are. Um, what we find in this passage, I'm calling it a panorama of prophecy. You know what panorama, a picture in panoramic view is? It's a wide-angle view of some landscape. And so that's what we're given here in this passage. This is one of the most important prophetic chapters in all of the Bible uh, because it does give us a panorama of prophecy, uh, sort of a succession of world empires as it leads all the way up to the coming of Jesus Christ and when he comes in all of his power and all of his glory to consummate his kingdom. Now this seventh chapter begins a transition. There's a transition away from the biographical uh, and historical narrative to what we would refer to as apocalyptic literature. Up until this point in the book of Daniel, the story has been chronological. Daniel has told us the story of what had happened in his life uh, during his 70 plus years in Babylon living as an exile. Well, chapters 7 through 12 are not chronological. Uh, they're not narrative as much as they are prophetic. Uh, they're apocalyptic literature. Now, I read where some 26, 27% of the Bible was prophecy at the time of its writing. Now, think about that. More than a quarter of the Word of God is prophecy. And yet prophecy is one of those subjects that we tend to be nervous when we approach. And uh, as a preacher, as a pastor teacher, uh, the prophetic passages of the Bible are those that really uh, cause butterflies to well up in our stomach when we come to these passages and we preach from these passages simply because there's so much involved uh, by way of symbolism, imagery that's used, uh, for example, in this seventh chapter, Daniel has a vision of beasts, beasts with m many different heads and beasts that take many different shapes. He's told that this is symbolic of the nations of humanity. And so prophecy is one of those subjects. We don't want to go off on a tangent and sort of fall off in the deep end of things. Uh, neither do we want to miss the forest for the sake of all the trees. And yet prophecy is important. The apocalyptic literature of the Bible is important simply because uh, it, it reaches out and grabs our attention. Uh, it's intended to sort of be shock treatment, to jolt us from our lethargy and complacency and to remind us as the people of God that God has a cosmic plan and that uh, his kingdom wins that his agenda will be carried out, his purposes will ultimately prevail, and the apocalyptic prophetic passages of the Bible show us how this is indeed the case. And so Bible prophecy was not written simply for the purpose of intrigue, not simply for the purpose of us being able to be curious about 
various parts and details of the beasts and those kinds of things here in this passage. But we've got to keep the big picture in mind. Again, remember, this is prophecy in panoramic view. And the big picture is, no matter what seems to be happening in the world around us, uh, no matter the shape that man's kingdoms tend to take from time to time, ultimately, the plan, the purposes of Almighty God will prevail. God has a kingdom in mind for his son, and nothing can stop that. And that's the emphasis of this passage here in Daniel chapter 7. So if you've got your Bible there, uh, I want to read beginning in verse number 1. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands of thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one 
that shall not be destroyed. Now, that's the vision that Daniel received. Beginning in verse 15 and the verses that follow, leading all the way through the close of the chapter, Daniel will be offered an interpretation of this vision by an angelic messenger. And that messenger is going to tell Daniel that what he saw as far as the beasts that came up out of the sea, the sea was representative of humanity, and the beasts that emerged from the sea represent four kings or kingdoms that will be on the earth. And so Daniel sees a succession of empires leading all the way up to the coming of someone who's simply described as being one like a son of man. And to this son of man, a kingdom is given. Dominion is given. Glory is given. And his kingdom is one that will not pass away. Now, in the minds of those who were the exiles living out their life in Babylon, uh, this message from Daniel would be a an encouraging, reassuring message. Because keep in mind that those Jewish exiles had been uprooted from all that they knew and held dear in Jerusalem many years before. Uh, They had been brought uh, in captivity to Babylon and were forced to live out their days in captivity. From their perspective, uh, they perhaps were tempted to believe that God and his kingdom were on the losing end of things. In their minds, it seemed as if all hope were lost. Uh, God had promised a kingdom to uh, the son of David, that the son of David would always rule and reign upon the throne. But here, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. And now these exiles are forced to live out their lives as slaves in Babylon. And so it didn't make sense from their perspective. That's why they needed to be able to see things from heaven's perspective. Which, by the way, uh, we're all too prone to give in to the same temptation when things go south in our lives. Uh, It seems like God and his kingdom is on the losing end of things from time to time. When we look around at all that's happening and transpiring in our world, it seems as if the darkness is ever increasing. We know that we're the sons and daughters of light, and it seems like we're fighting a losing battle. But that's only from our perspective. It's not from heaven's perspective. That's why the message of Daniel chapter 7 is one that's so very important because it provides the people of God with future hope so that we might live our lives with present courage and faithfulness. And so in this way, this passage serves as a prophetic anchor. It gives us a grand sweep of human history with all of its empires and kingdoms, but at the heart of it all is this promise that the dominion of our God is an everlasting dominion, one that will not pass away. And it's only when you were convinced of this as a believer that you will possess a key that will help you unlock the meaning of history. You see, the thing is, when you look at history from a human standpoint, uh, it all just seems so random, it doesn't seem to make sense. There have been atrocities in history, uh, you know, that, that that just absolutely shock us to the core when we think about it, and we think about something like that ever happening again. But you see, Daniel 7 provides us as believers with the key to the meaning of history. God is one who is sovereignly ruling and overruling. History is his story, and he's bringing human history to the climactic moment when all of the kingdoms of this world will belong to God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I've 
tried to group these verses under three different headings. And the first heading we looked at last week, uh, number one, the turmoil of nations. Daniel's vision here has to do with the turmoil of the nations. He says it was in the first year of King Belshazzar that he was given a dream. And uh, the visions of his head as he lay in bed were these. He writes down what he saw. He gives a summary of all that he saw. He says, I saw in my vision by night. He said, the winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Now, in the Bible, you'll often find that the sea is used as a symbolic image of the nations of humanity. Just as the ocean is often storm-tossed and troubled, so also the nations of the world are often in confusion and chaos. Much of that's brought on by war, conflict, social agitation and revolution, social upheaval. In history, all of this has sort of given rise to uh, the most evil of empires. The waves are unpredictable. In a similar way, the course of human history is beyond man's ability to chart. And so Daniel, in his dream, he sees the churning of the sea, which from down in verse 17, we know that this is a symbolic reference to humanity, the nations. It's the sea of humanity that's churning. It's a picture of social, political revolution as the passions of history seem to boil over into conflict. But the detail I want you to notice is in verse 2, Daniel says that he sees the four winds of heaven that are stirring up the sea. There's something going on in heaven that's stirring up the sea of humanity on earth. In other words, Daniel sees a sovereign God standing behind it all. There's a sovereign God who is in control of history. From a human perspective, the nations seem to be working out their own agendas, their own destinies, but Daniel sees the invisible wind of God blowing over the surface of the water to accomplish his will in his own time. And again, this is a key theme that we've seen in our study of Daniel. All throughout Daniel, we've seen this truth emphasized that God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. It was a lesson that Nebuchadnezzar had to learn. It was a lesson that Belshazzar uh, had to learn after him and that Darius had to learn after him in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel learns the truth that God's kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion will be to the end. And so think about how reassuring this is to our lives as believers. Often while we're going about life, reacting to the situations we find thrust upon us, we need to be... uh, Uh, cognizant of the fact that the wind of Almighty God is directing the vessel of humanity to the destination that he intends. God is in control of your life. God is in control of the circumstances and the surroundings and the happenings of your life. And that's something that we can find great courage and encouragement from. So this is the turmoil of nations. Now, there's a second heading that I want you to see, and it's this. A transition of power. In his vision, Daniel sees the turmoil of nations, but this turmoil has to do with a transition of power that happens through a succession of world empires. It's a a succession that will happen from Daniel's day that will lead up all the way until the coming of Christ. 
Now, at the time, all of this was still future to Daniel. But some of it has been fulfilled, as we're going to see uh, here in just a minute. You'll notice in verse 3 that Daniel moves away from the sea, and he focuses our attention on what he sees emerging from the sea. What he sees uh, are these beasts, these vicious-looking creatures that emerge from this churning sea. Now, use your imagination with me this morning and imagine that you're there on the shoreline. You're looking out over a vast body of water. That body of water is choppy and the waves are churning and the wind is blowing and the waves are white capping. But in the distance, you begin to see something emerge from the depths of the sea. And the closer that it gets to you, the more you recognize that, man, this thing is a monster of sorts. This is a beast. In fact, it's not just one beast, but Daniel sees four beasts that emerge from this churning sea. And later on, he's told that these beasts are symbolic of kings and kingdoms. Beyond the beast is what they symbolize. So most Bible scholars agree that Daniel's dream here in chapter 7 corresponds with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter 2. We dealt with that many weeks ago. You remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of a man that was made up of different types of metals. The head was made up of gold and the arms and chest were made up of silver. The belly and thighs were made of bronze. The legs were iron, the feet were made up of iron and clay mixed together. And when the interpretation was given through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he was told that it represents kings and kingdoms to come. The head of gold was symbolic of Babylon and the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, The arms and chest of silver represented the kingdom of the Medes and Persians that overtook Babylon. The bronze pointed to the kingdom of Greece the empire of Alexander as it overtook Persia. Uh, The legs of iron was symbolic of Rome and the Roman empire that grew throughout the world and uh, grew to dominate the entire Mediterranean uh, region for for centuries. The feet, the iron uh, and clay mixed together was made up of ten toes. Uh, In many ways, this is symbolic of a future kingdom, a revived Roman empire of sorts that will be the last kingdom on earth, headed up by the Antichrist. All of this is contained here in chapter 7, albeit in a different form. For example, the first beast that Daniel sees coming up out of the sea is described Uh, being like that of a lion with eagle's wings. Daniel sees the wings plucked off. Uh, This beast was made to stand on its two feet like a man. Uh, This this corresponds with the vision in chapter 2. This is Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps it's a reference to the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar that we read about in chapter 4. The identity of the second beast described in verse 5. This is reference to the Medes and the Persians who took Babylon in 539 B.C. The fact that it's raised up, the bear is raised up on one side, uh, this perhaps refers to the strength of the Persians over that of the Medes. The third beast described in verse 6 refers to the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. That's a fitting uh, image that Daniel sees, a leopard, because a leopard is known as being the, swift of, the swiftest of all beasts. 
And history tells us that Alexander and the kingdom of Greece overtook the world, uh, I mean, just in such rapid fashion. Alexander died at the young age of 33. He didn't have an heir or a successor. And so after he died, his kingdom was divided up among his four generals. And so you'll notice that this third beast, Daniel sees that it has four heads, perhaps a reference to the fourfold division of the Greek empire after Alexander died. The fourth beast described in verses 7 and 8, well, there's no animal characteristic given to this beast. It's just simply described as being terrifying. Nothing in creation can be used to to compare this beast to. Daniel saw that it had great iron teeth. And so in this way, it corresponds with the iron legs of the vision that Nebuchadnezzar received back in chapter 2. Daniel says he saw that this beast devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It's a fearsome beast. In one sense, this beast corresponds with Rome, whose armies swept across the ancient world, establishing an empire that stretched throughout the entire Mediterranean region from east to west. And yet, at the same time, we know that there's more here, just like we saw back in chapter 2. The heart of the vision in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had saw uh, a stone cut out of a mountain. And that stone collided with the legs and the feet of clay and iron in the image of his dream, uh, smashing it to smithereens. And when Daniel comes along and gives the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar, he says, listen, uh, this is symbolic of the last world kingdom that's going to be destroyed when, when the God of heaven is going to establish a kingdom that will be forever and ever. Daniel's going to be given a similar interpretation here in that this fourth beast, as it corresponds with Rome, in some way it also refers to a future world empire uh, that is in power uh, in the last days. In fact, we don't have time to read it, but you can read Revelation 13 and you can see how the Apostle John, as he's there stranded on the Isle of Patmos, as he's given the revelation, as he's given a glimpse of what uh, the last days will involve, he describes this beast empire to a T, using the same language and imagery that Daniel uses here in chapter 7. The idea is there's going to be a final world order a final world empire that will be in place at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Daniel sees that this beast is headed up by uh, an individual referred to as the little horn, which is a prophetic reference to the Antichrist. Later on in chapter 7, this little horn in the last days is going to wage war against the saints. But... He's going to be short-lived. His empire is going to be short-lived. Christ is going to come, and Christ is going to destroy the beast and establish his own kingdom forever and ever. Now, that's a grand sweep of prophetic history. You can begin to be intrigued by all of these details, and you can find yourself in a ditch real quick if you're not careful. What we need to be concerned with is the fact that in spite of what's going on in terms of the nations of humanity, Regardless of the fact that kings come, kings go, empires rise, empires fall, man's empire is often in rebellion, defying the God of heaven. All that man has is given to him by one who reigns supremely over him. And that's the emphasis here in this text. 
You'll notice it's almost as if these beasts sort of incrementally assume independence away from the source of all dominion and power, culminating in this little horn figure, uh, evil personified with eyes like a man, a mouth speaking blasphemous words. But the thing to pay close attention to about these beasts is the passive language that's used to describe them. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, passive verbs are used to describe these beasts. Uh, notice how the first beast had its wings plucked off. It was made to stand on its own two feet. The second beast was told to arise and devour much flesh. In other words, it received its marching orders. The third beast had dominion that was given to it. Now that's an important thing for us to understand. The empires of man, man in his kingdom, man in his pride tends to think that he rules the day. Man likes to think of himself as his own little sovereign. But the fact that these are passive verbs used to describe these these beast-like characters, folks, it all just underscores the fact that the empires of men, the kingdoms of men, ultimately are subject to Almighty God. Romans 13 says there is no power except that which has been ordained of God. You say, you mean even the most, most atheistic, ruthless dictators that have ever ruled in human history? They, too, are subject to a sovereign, omnipotent God. That's exactly what I'm saying. So don't get this idea that these beasts that come up out of the churning sea of humanity take God by surprise. Remember, it's the wind of God that stirs up the sea to begin with. And by the way, we need to remember this when politics and the geopolitical conflicts of this world constantly dominate the news cycle. We need to remember this in a political season that regardless of candidates, regardless of platforms, regardless of parties and all kinds of stuff, there is a God in heaven who raises up rulers and takes rulers down. There is a God in heaven who establishes kingdoms and takes kingdoms down. And ultimately, they all serve the purposes of God in heaven. Wow. Wow. So the third heading, and and this is really the main emphasis in the text, the turmoil of nations, transition of power, the third heading is what I'm calling the triumph of God. The scene shifts in verse 9 from the sea and the beasts that emerge from the sea to a courtroom scene. And Daniel says, as I looked, he says, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat used three times in this seventh chapter, uh, that phrase, ancient of days. This is a name for God that emphasizes his eternal existence. Simply means that he's the God who's existed from eternity past. He's the one who will exist for all of eternity to come. He's the one who's planned all things. He sustains all things. And he is working out his plan even when it doesn't seem that way from our perspective. Daniel catches a glimpse of this ancient of days and notice how he describes him there in verse 9. He says his clothing was white like snow. It speaks of the purity, the radiant splendor and majesty of our God. His hair was like pure wool. That speaks of wisdom. 
Every time you begin seeing one of those silver hairs emerge in the mirror when you're combing your hair in the morning, uh, remind yourself of that. Silver hair, it's symbolic of wisdom in the scriptures. This is wisdom. This is, this is a, the wisdom and the perfect knowledge of our God that's being described here. Uh, his throne was consumed by fiery flames. That's a picture of his holiness, his judgment. Here's one who's come to judge the nation's of man, the kingdoms of man. And it's all revealing of his omnipotent character. It points to his sovereign rule. Here is one who's eternal, who's holy, who's perfect in power, and all of this is seen in contrast to the beastly, imperfect, short-lived empires of man. God is the one who's ruling over history. Yeah, these beasts may frighten, they may roar for a season, They may come along and crush and consume kingdoms that are weaker than they are. They may reject God's law, vilify God's people. But in the end, all will be brought to judgment and the kingdom of God will be established. In fact, this is the thing that uh, the psalmist writes about in Psalm 2. Uh, Turn to Psalm 2 for just a second. I want you to see this. Look at Psalm 2, that great messianic song of David. Psalm 2, the question is posed in verse 1 of that psalm, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations just seem to rage against the truth of God? Why do the nations seem to be in rebellion against God? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The idea is, it's the disposition of humanity and man's kingdoms to resist the rule and the authority of God who is over him. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want this king to rule over us. We want to be our own sovereign. We we don't want to be subject to anyone but ourselves. We want to be our own lords I'm the one who's in control of the destiny of my life. I'm the one who's in control. I don't want to bow the knee to someone else. Especially God, Christ. They take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. The Hebrew word there, it's Messiah. We don't want a Messiah. We don't want this Messiah to be over us. How does God respond to this? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Does the rebellion of humanity and uh, the wicked empires that man builds that are united in hostility against God and his people, does all that take God by surprise? Is God in heaven wringing his hands and just worrying about it all? Not according to the text. He who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to him in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, The Lord said to me, You are my son. This day have I begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You want to know what God's plan is for humanity? It's to give the kingdoms to his son. To give the nations to the Lord Jesus Christ, God's own son. 
So you go back to Daniel 7, and then you get to verse 13, and Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Daniel has been building up to a crescendo at this point. In fact, linguistic scholars will tell you that the book of Daniel, we know it uh, in its division of 12 chapters, but in its original uh, language, uh, Hebrew and Aramaic, Daniel writes this, it's in chiastic structure. You say, what in the world is that? Well, um, Hebrew or ancient literature written in chiastic structure. Uh, think um, Think about us, let's say we go hiking. We're gonna climb a mountain. And we begin at the base of the mountain, and on the way up to the top of the mountain, we enjoy all of the scenery that we're taking in. The details that we encounter along the way, they're all part of the experience, but it's the top of the mountain, that's our goal. So Hebrew chiasm, is, is, it's, it's, a, it's a literary device in such a way where the biblical author writes as he's building to this crescendo, and that crescendo serves as his main point. So the crescendo uh, in the book of Daniel comes here in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the central vision of the book of Daniel. And central to chapter 7 is this vision in verse 13 of the Son of Man. Now now think about how different this is. A lot of times we'll approach the book of Daniel and we think it's all about the end times and it's all about the Antichrist and it's all about prophecy and that kind of thing. Listen, don't lose sight of the forest for the sake of all the trees. All of that is secondary. You want to know what's primary here in the book of Daniel? It's the same one who's primary in all 66 books of the Bible. It's Jesus. It's this son of man figure. Daniel says, I saw one who could best be described as being one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. And he was presented before the Ancient of Days. Who might this Son of Man figure be? Well, a couple of things to point out. Let me just mention the designation that he's known by. Son of Man. This is not an angel. This is not a mere man. Daniel sees one who is like a Son of Man. And that he said to be coming with the clouds of heaven, this is an indication of deity. In fact, you see this language used all throughout the Bible as it's applied to God appearing to his people. Exodus chapter 13, uh, the Bible says that the Lord led his people through the wilderness wanderings, a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. Just before... God summoned Moses to the top of the mountain where he gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. Later on, whenever the temple had been built and dedicated, 1 Kings chapter 8 said, The cloud of God's presence fills the inner sanctuary. Isaiah chapter 19, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is talking about what the world can anticipate when he returns, Jesus said, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. 
So this son of man figure is none other than Jesus himself. In fact, the title son of man was the Lord's favorite self-designation. Read through the Gospels and try to count up all the times that he referred to himself as the son of man. To put it in perspective, the title Christ, anointed one, the Greek, uh, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, it's used 49 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to refer to Jesus, and only 11 of those times it was used by Jesus to refer to himself. The title Son of God is used 25 times in the Gospels. Only five of those times was it used by Jesus to refer to himself. The title Son of David, it's used 14 times by the Gospel writers. Only once was it used by Jesus to refer to himself. But this title, Son of Man, it's used 78 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to describe Jesus, and all 78 times it was used by Jesus to refer to himself. That simply means the only one uh, in the Gospels who referred to Jesus as the Son of Man was Jesus himself. Now that is highly significant, especially when you understand what this title means and what it represents. It's an unmistakable claim to deity. In fact, Caiaphas, the high priest and the council, in Mark chapter 14, they, they, they used this against Jesus to accuse him of blasphemy when he was on trial before the Sanhedrin. They asked him the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. It was then they stopped up their ears accused him of blasphemy, handed him over to be crucified. So they understood the significance of the claim. Jesus was identifying himself with this son of man figure in Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> oh, now I want to show you something really cool. Here in verse 13, I don't know if you remember some weeks back, but I told you that really from the first part of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 7, the original language here in Daniel is Aramaic. And then you get into chapter 8, and the language goes back to Hebrew. Now, Hebrew and Aramaic are related languages. They're very similar. But it's in Aramaic that, that, that chapter 7, verse 13 is in Aramaic, and the phrase son of man in Aramaic, it's bar, bar inasha. It's the only time that this is used in the Old Testament, the only time this is used in the Bible in Aramaic. Now, Son of Man is used about 107 times in the 39 books of the Old Testament. But outside of this reference here in verse 13, uh, it translates into Hebrew, Ben Adam, Son of Man. In fact, even the book of Daniel uses these two different translations of this, this phrase. It's Baranasha, Son of Man, verse 13, you get into a vision in chapter 8, Daniel, Daniel is referred to as son of man. Not the son of man, but a son of man. But it's Hebrew. Ben Adam. You see this used in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel uses this phrase, Ben Adam, son of man, uh, 93 times or so. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Why are you telling us this? Because listen, Jesus... In his earthly ministry, the language that he spoke was Aramaic. 
So when Jesus referred to himself as son of man, it was not a son of man, it was the son of man, Bar Enasha. It's a reference to this verse, Daniel 7, 13, which means that Jesus quoted from Daniel chapter 7 more than any other Old Testament passage. And the significance of this is staggering when you consider who this Son of Man figure is. Daniel says, I looked and behold, coming with the clouds of heaven, I saw one like a Son of Man. He doesn't simply say, I saw an angel. He doesn't simply say, I saw a man with his imperfection. He says, I saw one who is like a son of man. He's human. Oh, but there's something more to who this person is. This is the God-man. So the designation that he uses is significant. Who is the son of man? A lot of times we think, well, son of man, that just refers to Jesus in his humanity. But folks, it refers to so much more than that. Listen, that Jesus is the Son of Man. And every time that that phrase is used in the New Testament, there's always that definite article in the Greek, the Son of Man. It's the fact that here is is the true and perfect Adam. Here is the second Adam. Here is one who's come to get right where Adam and his descendants went wrong. It's as if God is saying, here is the living embodiment of all that I intend for humanity. Here is the true man. Here is the true image of God. As man was originally created to be one who has perfectly fulfilled the destiny for which man was created in the first place. So when we say that Jesus is the son of man, we're saying, hey... He is like a human being as those made in God's image were meant to be but failed to be. And where we fail, he got it right. He got it right. Now listen, some of you are so discouraged in your Christian life right now because no matter how hard you try, you just keep struggling with sin. You so long to want to be like God in every way, but you know that you're imperfect and you know that you're fallible and you know that you're prone to weakness. And that's why the the doctrine of the Son of Man is so important for you to know because it testifies of our Lord's passive and active obedience on your behalf. Where Adam failed in a garden, Jesus Christ came and he got it right, y'all. He fulfilled the law of God. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. And as such, he's the only one qualified to be able to approach the Ancient of Days. Notice the direction that this Son of Man is going in. Daniel says, I saw him, and he came to the Ancient of Days. I saw a victorious God-man who comes to the Ancient of Days. And by virtue of who he is, to this Son of Man is given a kingdom and dominion and glory that will not pass away. And so he's worthy of dominion that all nations, all peoples, all languages should serve him. Wow. So because he has authority, this son of man is given the right to judge and rule the nations. And that's what Daniel sees here. And it's all a reminder of God's sovereignty over human affairs, no matter what seems to be happening from our perspective. 
above all of the beastly commotion of the nations of humanity. And when you look at the political scene today, I mean, isn't it just beastly? Isn't that just a good word to describe? Beastly. There is one who's seated on the throne. And all glory, honor, dominion, and power belongs to him. The dominion that Adam lost and forfeited, the dominion that we so want to regain for ourselves, which, by the way, you want to know what politics really are? I'll tell you what they are. Man trying to get back the dominion that he lost. A man who's trying to succeed and prove himself through his business and his accomplishments, that internal ambition and drive that he had. What is that but just him trying to recover the dominion that was lost in the fall? Or when we get so caught up with our appearances and our looks and we want people to stroke our egos and all that, what does that feed but this desire for self-rule and dominion in our hearts, a dominion that was lost because of the fall of our first parents? But you see, here's what I want you to see, folks, that in Jesus Christ, that dominion has been recovered. Jesus Christ, the better Adam, the last Adam came to get right what he got wrong, and to him, dominion is given. And now, to be in Jesus Christ is to share in that dominion. It's to share in this inheritance that's been given to him. And you know, we often sing about this, don't we? In that wonderful song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. I love that song. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect Son of Man, in His living, in His suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save this hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in Him we stand. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. Christ, the Lord, upon the tree, in the stead of ruined sinners hangs a lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured and love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Daniel said, I saw one like a son of man who came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. Notice the progression. Notice the movement. Here's one who's come from earth to heaven. Here's one who's lived a perfect righteous life who satisfied the demands of God in his life and his death on the cross for sinners. And now, as such, he's ascended. He's enthroned. He's ruling and he's reigning at the right hand of power. And let me tell you, Jesus said the time is coming when every eye is going to see him coming back. He's going to come again and he's going to be returning with the clouds of heaven. And on that day, what he's inaugurated in his first coming will be consummated in his second. We live in the time between, don't we? 
We live between the times. Would you stand with me as we pray? Living between the times can be difficult for God's people. See, we live out of this reality that the kingdom belongs to our God and that Jesus is a victorious king. But when we look around and we see the state of things, there are times we question that. If you find yourself discouraged by what's been going on in the world around you or your own personal life, your own struggle with sin, then listen, can I just encourage you? Listen to the words of Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Don't seek the things below here on earth. Set your mind and your affections on things above where Christ is, seated in heavenly places, ruling and reigning, king over all, and realize that the day is fast approaching when Jesus is going to come again. And then our faith will become our sight. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior this morning, I want to encourage you to turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust in Christ alone. Only He can save you. He will save you. You say, Pastor, what do I say? Perhaps you pray something along these lines. Lord, I confess my sin and my need for you. I've broken your laws. I deserve judgment for my sin. But I believe that Christ died for me on the cross. And I believe that he was buried and that he rose again from the dead and that he ascended, that he is Lord. And I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead. And folks, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Christian, are you discouraged right now in your life? You feel like you're fighting hell by the acre? <laughs> Let me just encourage you with the truth of the Son of Man. And because He is victorious, you stand in His victory as a believer. And you're not saved by imitating His life. You're saved through participating in His life. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank You for Your Word. Thank you for the truth that you rule. No matter how things seem presently in the world around us, you rule and you're moving history to one climactic moment when the skies are going to split wide open and Jesus Christ is going to come again. Until that time, as we live between the times, we've got work to do, Lord. You've given us a mission. May we faithfully declare the gospel, make disciples, the power of your spirit that you supply. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.